Uh, in this class, we're, we're looking at foundational truths, things that are really uh, those principles that undergird us and make us who we are as God's people. And having looked at the concept of God's existence and the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, we started talking about the church. And one of the things that the church does as God's people is to worship. And so that's where our attention has gone the last few weeks. So as we think about the worship of the church, there are certain things that I would have you to consider. And with that being said, I really want to start with a question that seems very fundamental. Uh, if someone were to ask you, what is worship? How would you respond to that? What do you say? Okay. I think worship certainly involves admiration, but is that all that it is? Thanksgiving. Okay, there's Thanksgiving. There's a component of Thanksgiving as well. Honor and praise. Okay, so what we've done, we've talked about some of the attitudes that accompany worship. Admiration, right? Uh, some of the things that are involved in that. The idea of expressing thanksgiving, the idea of expressing praise. But what else has to be present for worship to take place? Okay, there is the one who is worshipped, right? I mean, individuals can have admiration for a lot of different things, right? We can even extend praise to a lot of different people or a lot of different things. But when true biblical worship takes place, you have to have the right object for worship, don't you? And it has to be directed in the proper orientation, which is toward God. Okay? A couple of simple definitions that uh, some individuals have given. One, by Brother Hugo McCord, he said the word worship means to give a person of worth, respect, and honor. Uh, so it's, it's the idea of recognizing, as, as Missy was saying, one who is worthy. And then you, you extend to them respect and honor. Okay, and some of those are some of the very words that we talked about. Uh, another definition uh, that came from Basil Barrett Baxter, he said, Worship is the adoring reverence of the human spirit for the divine. And so there is the right orientation. Okay, it is not just about me, it's about the God whom I am seeking to worship. Okay, now those definitions are important because when we come together for worship, Oftentimes, our minds focus on the things that we do in worship, right? We think about the singing, or we think about the Lord's Supper, or we think about prayer, or we think about preaching, we think about giving, and we really miss the impetus for all of that. Why are we singing? Isn't it to extend our praise to God? Now, we can sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And in our past studies, especially through the psalms, you have seen that not every psalm is a psalm of praise. There are a lot of psalms that pour out the psalmist's heartache toward God. Uh, psalms are prayers as well. And sometimes those prayers are very, very raw. You know, God, why are you letting this happen in my life? Why is this taking place? Why aren't you acting? Don't you know who I am? Don't you realize that I'm your servant? So uh, we sing, though. But to whom are we singing? We're singing to God. Uh, to whom are we praying? We're praying to God. 
Why are we teaching God's Word? Because we want individuals to see what God's Word directs us to do. It's intended to cause us to act. Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? We are remembering what God did when He sent Jesus to the earth. Why are we giving? So that God's work can take place. And the problem is, we have turned worship into a very individually oriented action. And we tend to think about whether we got something out of the worship. And by its very definition, worship can have a benefit to you as a byproduct, but that's not the most important aspect of worship. Worship truly is not about what you get out of it. Worship is truly about what you put into it. Now, are there benefits when you do that? Of course there are. But if we're not putting into our worship, then we're certainly not benefiting from it. It's not going to achieve the end result that God intends. So, as we think about worship, let's think about some of these components that were mentioned a moment ago. What does worship involve? Well, I want to share a few passages with you, and we'll look briefly at some of these so that we get the idea of the concept. Number one, worship involves the idea of praise, and that's obviously self-evident, and we've talked about that before, but look at Psalm 145. Psalm 145, and let's pick up at the beginning of that passage. And just as an aside, one of the things about the structure of the book of Psalms is, is fascinating to me, and that is the psalm begins, the psalms begin with the first and second psalms, which really do set the tone for the pursuit of wisdom in relying upon God's plan, but they end in complete praise. And so 145 to 150 are psalms of praise. It's exactly what they are. And it reminds us of what praise is. Okay, so let's just notice uh, as this passage begins, verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Now, the idea of extolling God is the idea of praising God. Matter of fact, some of your modern translations might say praise. That's the concept there. But when he says, I will extol you or I will praise you, God, my King, I will bless your name forever and ever, he is seeking to show the significance of God. He says in verse 2, Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. The mindset of the one who is praising God in this passage is really an eruption. It's a boiling over. The psalmist can't help but laud God for who God is. Okay? That's the kind of mentality that we ought to have. And by the way, I think that mentality of praise has to really form almost the foundation upon which every one of our acts of worship is based. If we're not praising God because He sent Jesus to die on the cross when we take the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? If we're not praising God when we go to Him in prayer, you know, instead of just uh, hitting God with our wish list, right? I, I want you to help this person and this person, and oh, by the way, I really need your help in this spot and this spot, and all of these things that we have on our... If we don't recognize who God is first, 
then we're missing the point of what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is an avenue through which we praise God. It's the avenue through which we exalt God. So I think this sets the tone for what worship is supposed to involve. It begins with praise. And that's one of the reasons why, and, and those of you who lead singing have heard me say this before, and it's not original with me. I got it from someone else. But I think the song leader especially plays a very, very important role in the worship service in trying to really help everyone's mind focus on why we're here. Uh, and as a result of that, I would ask you, song leaders, to, first song you lead, take our minds to the throne of God. Praise God. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why I don't give the song leaders songs to lead. Because I don't want every song that we sing in worship to focus on the concept that I'm going to be talking about in my sermon. Uh, this isn't just about a neat package that we're putting together. This is about the God that we're worshiping. And so there are a variety of things that we're thinking about in worship. Not every Sunday am I preaching on the death of Jesus, but we're remembering the death of Jesus when we observe the Lord's Supper. And when we sing songs of praise, we need to praise God. And that's, that's a key, key component. So, um, worship involves praise. But not just praise. Worship involves the idea of adoration. Now, let's, let's try to differentiate between these terms before we move on. Okay? So, if you're going to try to define praise, how would you define it? What would you say? Okay, there, there is the extolling of, which means what, though? It's a recognition. It's an honoring. I think that was one of the words that was used earlier. Um, there is, you know, another word that really is synonymous more than a definition is the idea of lauding. And we even sing songs that use that kind of language, right? We laud and magnify. Magnify might be a better word because it is, it is focusing attention on the God who is worthy, Right? And there's some thanksgiving that's involved there, too, although that, I think that's another component. What about adoration, though? What is adoration? What? Yeah, it's love. And so part of the motivation for worship is to be able to exalt God for who He is, but it's also to be able to express our love for Him. And our love for God matters, doesn't it? And if our love is more self-directed than it is God-directed, we're going to have a hard time focusing on worship. Which, by the way, I think is one of the great problems that people have with worship. I think we're more in love with ourselves than we are with God in our culture today. And so as a result, if something doesn't please me, then I lose complete focus about it. Because I'm thinking about myself rather than thinking about God. And so the adoration matters. Look at Psalm 116 for just a moment. Psalm 116, and let's look at verses 1 through 5. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call upon Him as long as I live. There are a lot of reasons we have to love God, but one of those is that we can go to Him in prayer. And 
the idea that God hears us when we do that is significant. He goes on and he says in verse 3, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. And then he responds, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. We've got a lot of reasons to love God, don't we? But we love God especially because of His willingness to incline His ear to us, to hear us, and because of His willingness to help us through our times of trial. And so when we can look at our own lives and see times of difficulty and times of trial in the hand of God at work, bringing about the things that we now enjoy, that's a great blessing, isn't it? So it's a foundational principle of worship. So we worship uh, by praising God, by adoring God, And then there's an aspect of appreciation. And this would fall in line with the concept of thanksgiving that we mentioned a moment ago. It's it's an acknowledgement of what God has done, of who God is. Look at 1 Chronicles 29. Just as an aside, and I I will officially award bonus points if somebody answers this question correctly. What's the difference between 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles? The primary difference. There are obviously some other differences. Any idea? It is, by and large, the audience to which they were written. First and Second Kings is older. It is written just after the uh, Babylonian captivity begins. And so it's very contemporary with those events that are transpiring. Whereas, First and Second Chronicles is really a reminder of what's happened for that generation that has left Babylonian captivity. And so there are a lot of folks who think that Ezra, who was a ready scribe, perhaps was the author of First and Second Chronicles. And there are some that speculate that Jeremiah, perhaps, was the author of First and Second Kings. And that's interesting, and we can't say one way or the other. But you do get the perspective. That, that's why the first nine chapters of First Chronicles contain the entire genealogy of the Jewish people. Why would they do that there? Well, because what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed? They lost those records. So they needed another reminder of them. So they get the records back in First and Second Chronicles, and on and on you get the bigger picture of the, of the two. So I say that to you because we're going to be reading First and Second Chronicles later on next year, and it'll kind of give you some background for it. But um, look at First Chronicles 29, and this is... Uh, in the midst of uh, David and Solomon. David, you remember, wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let him do it. And why would God not let David build the temple? He had blood on his hands, right? He's a man of war. So who was going to have the responsibility of building the temple? Solomon was going to, okay? Well, in preparation for that, David really wanted to build God the temple, so he goes ahead and he starts collecting 
the necessary items that will be utilized in the building of this magnificent structure. And David, praising God as he generally does, uh, extends appreciation to God for his help in the collection of all of these things. And that's what you get in 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Verse 13 says, Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. David's thanking God. Okay? Now, his thanksgivings are really closely adjoined to the idea of praise. And so I'm not trying to draw a hard, fast distinction between the concept of praise, but what I do want you to notice is that thanksgiving is certainly a component of worship. So why are we worshiping God? Why are we praising God? Why are we adoring God? Aren't we thankful for what He's done? That's supposed to be what this is about. And so when we gather for worship on the Lord's Day, I know that we come with a sack of problems that we carry on our shoulder. And everyone has their own trials and their own struggles and their own temptations that they're dealing with and their own failures. But worship is not supposed to be a time where you are focused on your problems and your failures. Worship is supposed to be a time where you can set those aside and focus on God because of who He is. So that you can praise Him for His perfection. So that you can adore Him for what He has done for you. So that you can express appreciation for Him or thanksgiving for Him for who He is. Another component of worship is the idea of dependence. And uh, perhaps the 100th Psalm says that as, as well as anything that I could convey. It's one of the shorter Psalms and it's certainly a Psalm of praise. But watch what it says, and, and we'll, we'll note this, especially in verse 3, but begin in verse 1. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. Do we need that reminder? We sure do, don't we? Who's God? Well, it's not me. And it's not you. Which reminds us that I'm not the one who's in charge of everything. Which is a reminder that I need to know. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. And so then he goes on and he says, We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. There's a dependence, isn't there? Know that the Lord, he is God. He is our creator. But then you also have in that very same verse the idea of him being the Lord. Now, when someone truly was a Lord over another, what did that mean? They're the master. Okay? Is there a dependence in that relationship between master and servant? 
There is, isn't there? So you've got the Lord who is the master. You've got the Lord who is the maker. You've got the one who is the shepherd. He is the shepherd of his people, in other words. He's the caretaker of us. He is the protector of us. In all of those images, there is the concept of dependence. Okay, So we depend on God, and when we worship, we're supposed to acknowledge that dependence upon God. It's supposed to be something that we can declare freely. Yes, God, I depend upon you. I need you. And there are a lot of beautiful songs that help us. And by the way, it's interesting. Look through the songbooks and see the different songs that focus on these different aspects of worship. I was thinking as I was saying that, the song, I Need Thee Every Hour. What a beautiful song. And it expresses the concept of dependence. And by the way, that's a reminder that we need in a time in which we act like we don't need anybody. You know, we have our own abilities. And so God certainly is one that we desperately, desperately need. So worship involves praise and adoration and appreciation and dependence. And then, very, very importantly, the concept of reverence. And I want to look at an Old Testament passage and then a New Testament passage. Look at Psalm 29. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, reverence doesn't mean solemnness. Okay, they're, they're not exactly the same thing. And so I don't think that we ought to be afraid to sing because we are overwhelmed by this uh, desire not to be too um, extroverted, if you will. Uh, that's, not the that's not the concept here. The concept, however, is that there is an appropriate way to worship God, isn't there? You worship Him, and, and what the psalmist says in verse 2, I find very, very uh, interesting when he says, You worship Him in the beauty of holiness. In other words, when it's done properly, there is an aesthetic beauty to worship. And I'm going to tell you, worship, and I have mentioned this to you before, in my judgment, is one of the most difficult things that we ever try to do. And I don't mean to say that it's difficult to go through the motions of worship. It's pretty easy to sing. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to bow our heads and close our eyes when someone's leading us in prayer. It's easy to even halfway listen when the preacher's talking to you. Uh, it's easy to partake of the emblems of, of the Lord's Supper. It's certainly easy to take money out of your pocket and put it in a collection plate or whatever. But you do all those things and not worship, can't you? Worship isn't just about a physical action. That's the whole point. Okay, we're going to see that as we go through some other, some other matters. Let's look at this other passage. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. And we won't go through the entirety of verses 18 to 29, but I do want to make a point about that passage. 
in this section, the writer of Hebrews is drawing a contrast between what the scene looked like when the children of Israel were encamped at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were being given. And he makes a very clear point in verse 18 when he says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and blackness, and darkness, and tempest. Okay, So that's a reference to the, uh, the gathering of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And Moses told them, look, if, as much as any of you touch the mountain, you're going to be shot. You can't draw near to God with that kind of mentality. In other words, we can't be flippant when we're in God's presence, right? It's not a joke. It's not something that doesn't matter or that it's insignificant. And he really draws that point to a very, very firm conclusion when he says in verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. That indicates that it's possible to serve Him in a way that's not acceptable. It's possible to worship in a way that's not acceptable. He says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Powerful reminder, and one that we need. Okay, so before we ever start talking about the acts of worship, although we're going to do that, it's very important to know why we do what we do and how we should do it. If these qualities don't undergird everything else that we do, we're missing the point. Okay? We can worship in truth and not worship in spirit. And both of those have to be present. So it's not just about doing the right things. It's about the mentality that accompanies those things. And I'm afraid that we have stressed so much the rightness of certain things and the wrongness of certain things that we've missed the whole point about worship. And we've made worship into something that's very mechanical, something that's very wooden, and something that we're not focused on. And so what I'm trying to convey to you is that biblical worship has to have these qualities in order to go forward. And I think you'll see that as we look at some of the other things. Very quickly, the reason that I think worship is perhaps the most difficult thing that we can do is because it involves both body and soul. And John 4, 23 and 24 You've got Jesus talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, and they're going back and forth, and she's asking him, okay, um, this mountain is where you Jews say you ought to worship, but we worship on this mountain. And Jesus talks to her about how the day will come when those who worship God will worship Him in spirit and truth. And then he adds, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Now, I've heard people say this, well-meaning throughout the years. You've got to worship God in the right way with the right attitude. Is it true that we have to worship God in the right way with the right attitude? 100%. But that's not what John 4.24 is talking about. When John 4.24 says God is spirit, what is it saying? Does it, does it mean God is an attitude? What does it mean then? God is a spiritual being, isn't He? Well, if, if the first part of that verse means God is a spiritual being, and then he goes on to say, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, what's he saying to us? You've got to worship him as a spiritual being, and you have to worship him in the appropriate way. In other words, you've got to use your body, truth, to do the right things, and you've got to use your spirit to worship the God who is spirit. All right? We'll unfold a little bit more of that next week.